There is a vast melancholy in the canticles of the wolves, melancholy infinite as the forest, endless as these long nights of winter, and yet that ghastly sadness, that mourning for their own, irremediable appetites can never move the heart, for not one phrase of it hints at the possibility of redemption. Hi, I'm Alexa. And I'm Ian. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our fellow creatures today. And today, our topic is wolves. <laughs> we have with us a guest, my wonderful colleague here at Utah State University, Laura Galfand. Uh, Laura is an art historian and has really turned her scholarship in recent years towards the study of animal human interactions and the constructions of animality, I guess, to use a term we've we've thrown around before. And one of her particular areas of expertise and interest is wolves. Welcome, Laura. Thank yes, you. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So today we're here to talk about wolves. And you started with a a reading from Angela Carter. Tell us a little bit about this passage and why you chose it. Uh, it's interesting because I've been thinking about Angela Carter quite a bit lately. She does these fascinating um, retellings of fairy tales and turns them into feminist tropes as opposed to what they were or have been. And so in them, she gives Little Red Riding Hood a great deal of autonomy and agency over her own body. To what well, degree do you think that Angela Carter's stories tap into sort of cultural narratives that have medieval, early modern, or even older origins? So I think there's something quite interesting with wolves in terms of they're the only species I've found that there seems to be a strong focus on and off with whether it's a female wolf or not. So the she-wolf that founds Rome, um, it's a sort of key moment and you find these sort of she wolves and, and there is a gendered construction throughout the middle ages with wolves where they go out of their way to identify if it is a she wolf or not. Whereas you don't really find that quite so much, maybe stags, you see it a bit. Um, I don't, you don't really see it with dogs that much, not, not in the same way. So there's something very interesting there. And I think Angela Carter is tapping into the way in which wolves have been war used to warn young women to stay on the path and she you see that all the time that the wolf is a threat and that's a construction of the wolf that seems to start very early on and even in places where they're entirely eradicated and cannot possibly come back like england um, you still see this kind of recitation of the warning that comes along with the wolf which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think Angela Carter, as an English writer, is contemplating that. She's really thinking about sort of these medieval warnings for an animal, a concept that doesn't even exist. So for, for our listeners uh, who, who may be less familiar with, say, the founding of Rome, <laughs> uh, could, you, could you talk a little bit about that? And also about like what, just like talk about some of these uh, folk tales that have the sort of war the wolf as warning figure, uh, just to just to let our our listeners know 
where these come from. Sure. So um, Rome supposedly was founded by a she-wolf who gave birth. Well, she didn't give birth to them. She found two foundlings, these twins, Romulus and Remus. And the two of them are, you know, fight with each other. She, you know, Romulus goes on to found Rome. And so Rome is founded by a foundling who was raised by a wolf. And the wolf is a symbol of Rome. It's still on all the ro- on coins in Italy. It's you see the she wolf with these two infant children, human children beneath her um, over and over again. It's hard to say exactly what that is, like where that story originates, but it is so profoundly part of Rome that you'll see it in medieval images where you've got a crucifixion and underneath the crucifix is this, you know, to situate Rome, you see this image of this she-wolf with these infants and it's just over and over and over again. And I'm, I've thought a lot about sort of when the wolf gets such a bad reputation, right? Because the Romans don't see the wolf as problematic. They embrace the wolf as part of their identity and it may very well be part of sort of early Christian iconography to set everything aside, you know, to say, we're not that, we're not pagan, that that's a strong pagan association. We don't want that. So we're going to reject the wolf. But the wolf gets cast in this role of the villain, the ultimate uh, sort of most vicious, terrifying thing very early on. It's used in all sorts of metaphorical ways in the Bible. Um, where it's, you know, if you think about a wolf in sheep's clothing, all of those kinds of metaphors that are that are coming from the New Testament, the Old Testament doesn't really cast wolves in, in such a bad light. It really is the New Testament where you start to see that. And then medieval artists and writers embrace that. Um, Dante, as he's trying to sort of ascend, initially runs into three beasts and one of them is a wolf. And they block his way. There are wolves showing up in all of these sort of strange, um, strange and made up ways that make them into something that's huge and terrifying. And it doesn't really reflect what they are. Um, and it's and it's sort of it's stories, it's fairy tales, it's anywhere you can think of the wolf shows up, and we use it in our everyday language all the time. If you think about the lone wolf, I'm, I mean, all of these things are humans, but like lone wolf shooters, right? Those are, I mean, but you're when you repeat the word wolf, you're repeating these metaphors, and you're continuously reinforcing this idea of the wolf as the bad guy. Um, and it's something that starts early on and then just goes and goes and goes. And it's still something you see. If you if you start looking around, I mean, I was just watching an episode of Succession, the new season of Succession. And at one point, one of the main characters goes into a drug den and the entire drug den is completely decorated with pictures of wolves. And they have this long conversation about wolves. <laughs> is it? So is there a reason why wolves in the Middle Ages become the negative image that, say, persists today? If they, you know, they weren't always that way, what is it about what's going on in, uh, in say, Europe in the early Middle Ages that turns this particular predator into the, the figure that it, that, it has, that it becomes? Well, I mean, I, I feel like, I mean, nobody, nobody really knows. I don't, I have never found an origin point for when exactly it happens, but it seems to me it's about 
the Catholic Church trying to set itself apart from its the pagan history that leads up to it and seeing Rome as represented by the wolf. And so they're, they want to sort of turn away from that. Um, it does show up in the Bible. And so I think that there are biblical um, precedents for it as well. And then I've written a couple of articles where I've talked about various things like early on, I think the wolf and the dog are close enough together that there is this need to tell them apart very early on. And that need to separate the dog from the wolf. And there is even a phrase, which is, you know, between the dog and the wolf. Um, I think that there is this sort of, they start to cast them in different lights so that the dog becomes uniformly a relatively uniformly positive. Um, it represents home. It represents security. It represents um, everything that humans feel safe with. And so the wolf somehow ends up being the opposite of that. And it is everything that is not home. It is the wilderness. It is every terrifying entity that exists outside of the home. And that sort of playing with that idea of home and not home, um, safety and not safety, the wolf is just cast in this terrible light early on. And it, it, and I'm not sure exactly why sometimes I think the dog is part of the problem that because of the dog, the, the wolf suffers, which is a strange thing to think about. And it's, it's all stuff we've done as humans. It has nothing to do with, with dogs or wolves and it still continues. Um, I have a recent piece that came out where I talk about how wolves in the U S have been embraced by environmentalists and then also used by extreme conservatives as a way of pissing off liberals, like killing wolves is a way to make liberals angry. And so all of these irrational wolf laws that are happening have a lot to do with this medieval past that mm -hmm. laid the groundwork for the things that are happening now. I was going to say, I think I read maybe in one of your pieces a reference to this idea of the wolf as kind of a symbol of freedom at the same time. So there's kind of an irony mm -hmm. in what you're saying. Like, I, I think the wolf in, in one of Aesop's fables says, I'd rather have famine and freedom than mm -hmm. the comfort and security of home that the, that the dog with its collar yeah, yeah. The dog accepts slavery, basically, mm -hmm. in order to um, have a full tummy. And I wonder, is that sort of Aesop's fables motif, and we know that the Middle Ages loved Aesop's fables, is that, do you find that sort of encounter balance at all to the idea of the wolf as this terrible bad guy? It's. A, I mean, it's an interesting question, Alexa. I think that there is something there, but it also plays into the idea of the wolf as uncontrollable, uncontrolled, wild, in negative ways. You know, I mean, it. any way you want to cast the wolf, you can cast it. The problem is most people rarely see wolves. And I think even in the Middle Ages, you rarely saw them. They weren't, you'd hear them, but you wouldn't see them. So you can sort of do whatever you want to them. You can make up whatever you want about them because they're not really present the way a dog is. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that um, wolves were extinct in England. When did that happen? Um, they're gone by about 1700. So the Which... last, I think the last wolf was killed in Scotland in 1740s, maybe. I, I consider that late, uh, but it is <laughs> tragic as it is. <laughs> it still means that yeah. the wolves, wolves were present. I wonder uh, whether the wolf is so firmly kind of uh, connected with 
marginal human figures, as you mentioned, right? Like the lone wolf, uh, that I wonder whether there's anything to do with uh, what we used to call the dark ages, but now uh, call the migration era, you know, between the mm-hmm. Roman empire and the, and the uh, like more settled societies of the middle ages. During that time, there was a lot more kind of disruption of fixed settled societies. So there just were a lot of, a lot more people on the margins or people who could have been perceived as being on the margins, even though they were simply on, you know, moving. And if if wolves had been previously attached to that kind of figure, you could see yeah. how that would, there's a kind of a negative cycle that would maybe uh, spin up and do that. But that's also a figure of freedom. I mean, an outlaw is a negative figure, yeah. but also a figure who is free of society. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, Ian, Ian, that's a really super interesting point. And I I do think that there is something there. They're also tied to lots of indigenous cultures tend to think positively about wolves, including, you know, as far as we know, Vikings, there are all of these sort of earlier cultures that tend to think positively about them. And it is that sort of like that Christian push that pushes them, pushes wolves to the margins, eradicates wolves and constructs them in this profoundly negative way. So if I did run into a wolf, in the woods Mm -hmm. as a medieval person, what kind of advice would I have for how to handle that situation? That's a, I love that question. I have no idea. They never, I've never seen a bestiary talk about what to do if you encounter a wolf. I, I, I've never seen, you know, lie down or get big or, you know, the kinds of stuff that people say now, which it's very unlikely that you would ever see one, but, um, I have no idea what medieval people thought they should do. I think just try to avoid them, you know, as much as you could. They definitely heard them, you know, they talk about hearing them. And I do think they probably hung around the outsides of encampments and things. You would hear them outside city walls. And and some of those, the walls are constructed to keep them out, you know, so that's some of it as well. But um so I don't like strip off all my clothes and and clack rocks together or something. I feel well, there like is some of, there is some of that, but I don't <laughs> think I don't think they really believed that. Do you? <laughs> stripping off I don't your no, it's in the bestiary. So uh, yeah, but stripping <laughs> off your clothes seems like a terrible idea, doesn't it? I guess it depends on what you look like naked. I think wolves, you mentioned howling. Wolves are also occupy a really important place in the development of ideas about voice and the mm-hmm. relationship between human voice and animal voice. Because I know that in the early modern, you know, the later period, still before the extinction of wolves in in, uh, in Great Britain, that the, wor- the word howl itself, there was debate about whether or not it was a word that comes from wolves and is then used for humans or whether it's a human word that they, that you know humans howl and then it was assigned to wolves because they sound like humans howling so you know wh- where does that come from that's an, and, and they didn't you know they it was an unresolved debate but it tells you in a sense when they at least in the middle ages and the renaissance when they hear a wolf howling they're very much thinking about the you know like a language and voice and you know what the emotional content of that is which I, I mean, it sort of makes sense in a way, given that dogs are communicating with us as well, using their voices. So you could see how they would put all of those things together, right? There's no other animal that's really talking to us the same way that our dogs are. So you could kind of make the assumption wolves are trying to communicate 
as well. It's a really, I don't know. I didn't know that about howling and, and the, the word howl and, and all, that's super interesting. Do you think, I mean, are there instances of talking wolves in medieval literature or like in these stories that become the sort of fairy tales of the 18th century? Are there, because like the wolf in Little Red Riding Hood talks, right? It does. Um, and it's be- because it's duplicitous, right? It's using its voice to, to attract and, and convince people of things and all sorts of things. Um which goes to it being duplicitous. They do talk. I mean, they definitely seem to talk quite a bit. Uh, but I think other animals speak too. I mean, Aesop, Aesop mm-hmm. definitely has them speaking. Uh, but they do seem more vocal and than many other kinds of animals in, in medieval literature. And and they, But they seem to talk more to other animals than they do to humans, don't you think? You know, there there is an early uh, medieval folk belief about uh, wolves that I learned from uh, a book by Elizabeth Marshall, uh, which is that a wolf can steal your voice. If you, if the wolf sees you before you see the wolf, oh, yeah. it will take your voice away. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think that means? Like, what do you think they're thinking when they say that? I've always been curious about that one. I have no idea. I was going to ask. I was I hoping know. you would tell us. I don't know. I wonder if it's that you're so terrified that you're speechless. I, I don't know. You know, it's like, it's really weird. I actually heard a wolf here in Utah in November. It must have been moving through because they don't live here. But um, And they're illegal in the state of Utah, just so you know. There's a constitutional amendment banning them. But I definitely heard a wolf. I mean, I've listened to them many, many, many times, recordings of them. And it was near a canyon, really nearby. And the sound was unbelievable. It was so haunting. It was not like anything I've ever heard. And I, you know, in a before light, before sort of the things that we have around us to protect us, it must have been an astonishing sound. And maybe it silenced you. Like maybe it was so scary that you became silent. I, I have no idea. I mean, I've thought about that a lot, Ian, that sort of idea that you lose your voice. And all I could think is that you're just scared into silence. You know, Laura, there are a fair number of canine saints, right? Like either saints that are associated with dogs or saints who are actually themselves dogs. Yeah. Uh, Saint Guinefor. Guinefor. Um, Is there, is there some kind of wolf saint or is there a like medieval hagiographic tradition with, with wolves in it? I don't or, know, you know. Like I'm trying to think. I think there must be, and nothing's coming immediately to mind. I've been really immersed in dogs. I'm sorry. Like, nothing is really right there. And I've also been thinking about modern wolves so much. Um there must be. Is there one, Alexa? I don't know. I'm asking you. I literally um, I have no idea. I thought I thought about that. Always, I know, because Guinefort it seems like there must be one, but it's not it's clearly not a very well known saint if there is one because i think of you know lions and dogs and but i don't i don't know if there is one that's associated with that i wonder if the uh the the raised by wolves i guess you can call it a trope because it comes back Mm -hmm. again and again from romulus and remus onward but i would suspect that if there were a, a i mean there may not be a wolf saint but there might be a i could imagine a saint 
who was raised by wolves. Is there like have you tracked any of that trope uh, sort of historically? You know, how where is it occurring? What are the most famous examples of raised by wolves? <laughs> no, and that's it would be a really interesting thing to do because uh, you do see specific she wolves showing up, which must be a reference in some way to that original she wolf. But um, I have I have never sort of sat down and tracked that in particular i've looked at sort of the gender construction of them and thought about that a bit but i've never um sort of gone through and kind of looked specifically at that whole idea of raised by wolves because it's so such a familiar trope there must be lots of examples of it um angela carter definitely plays around with that in her stories so there are lots of tales out there of children raised by wolves and what happens to them but, and they obviously have an origin source with Rome, but that there's probably an earlier source than that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I always say that, you know, when my students are behaving particularly um, badly, you know, that they were raised by wolves. <laughs> Alexa, um, you're perpetuating the stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> I won't wolf. say it anymore. What were you, raised by dogs? <laughs> Exactly. Dogs steal each other's food. Wolves don't do that. (laughs) Right, right. Um, So I I did, you know, with a quick scholarly search of Wikipedia, find one wolf association with hagiography. And I I can't believe I forgot about this, but the wolf of Gubbio, you know, the the Franciscan story about... There's this wolf, but it's this is a bad guy wolf, right? Like it's it's terrorizing this town. And this is a story that we have told on this podcast many times. And you can just like substitute the ferocious beast, um, you know, at will, basically. But, you know, there's this bad animal. It's terrorizing the town. The saint comes out and suddenly the animal is tamed and it, you know, does the will of the saint. We had a. A dragon story like that. Uh, Remember that dragon story? Yeah. I but so, I well I do love that. I mean it's so cute when Francis is shaking the wolf's paw, like it's so cute. Yeah. But the wolf so doesn't does that... follow him around. Like it's not like Jerome, right? Where the lion is like, Oh, I love you, you know, thank you. I'm gonna follow like the wolf is just sort of like, you know, okay, I'll i I'll leave these folks alone and just walks right. off and finds something else to do. Back to the right. forest. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, all these people from the town, like, have a religious conversion. As one would. But it is also part of Francis's whole nature boy thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's he's down with the animals. He preaches to the birds. Eats granola. Hands with, yeah, he definitely ate granola. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the unsweetened kind. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. And if oat milk had been around then, he would have been all over it. So truly an, an early vegetarian, you're saying? Oh, I think so. Don't you? Francis really, he loved the animals. You know how there's this other saint, I think his name is Saint Fiacra. Do you know who he is? Um, He's like another animal, like he's a saint, you know, that's like a pet saint. He's an Irish saint from like the 7th century, I think. And... Um, people have like little statues of him in their garden because he was friendly to animals, you know. Does he hang out with wolves? I don't think he does. I think he's just okay. more of a general animal-related saint. Okay. 
Yeah, um, patron of gardeners and taxi drivers, apparently. Yeah. Apparently, he really, really did not like women. As so he's the, all those saints that did. Yeah. But so mm-hmm. that makes him the patron saint of victims of venereal disease. <laughs> they, they need but a saint. They really need topic. a saint. Yeah, they really need a saint. <laughs> I guess he's more of a garden and domesticated space saint than a saint of the wilderness and the yeah. wild animals the way no, that Francis that is Francis to me is. like he's the ultimate nature boy is there any truth to the rumor that saint patrick preached to the wolves oh i don't know i mean what an interesting <laughs> would be an interesting yeah. thing to do i want to know what They're he said just, i know right and what they've made of it i there were i mean wolves hung out in ireland longer like they they there were definitely wolves in ireland um so he might have i'm not sure what he said though didn't he mention the vikings and i'm sort of curious like the vikings clearly had a kind of veneration for the wolf before they converted to christianity what like i don't know that much about that i just know that a lot of their names had sort of like the the syllable wolf in them so I'm, i'm wondering if you have more more to say on Vikings and wolves. Well, I guess I I sort of associated with all those other indigenous groups who see them, who are there to observe them and actually see them and watch the way they cooperate with each other, watch the way they work together to hunt, um, watch the way they nurse their young and take care, you know, all of those sort of positive things that wolves do, they all seem to recognize from having seen them and observed them in nature as opposed to just making assumptions based on weird information you've been given through various texts and preached mm-hmm. to and, and all of that. Those groups seem to really embrace them as positive archetypes and a positive role model. And so, you know, and, and they're fierce. I mean, they can take down huge animals and they work together to do it. And then they have a cooperative system in which they share the kill. And so, those things, I think, are are sort of idealized methods of working together that those kinds of groups, including the Vikings, embrace. Um, and that fierceness, I think, it's a, it's a positive attribute. I wonder, so you often get a wolf in like Germanic names as well. So, yes, yes, you know, all of those, all those kings of England and, and bishops in, in pre-Norman conquest England with wolfy type names yeah right you know not to mention wolf wolfgang amadeus mozart that's a wolfy wolfy (laughs) (laughs) like wouldn't wolfgang mean like a traveling wolf to get back to ian's point about like these marginal individuals and you've written uh laura in your work about the sort of ways in which um wolf dog distinctions and distinctions of breed within dog populations sort of coexist and and maybe even provide some of the generative force for, um, you know, sort of racial categories Mm -hmm. um, and sort of ethnic exclusionary categories where the wolf and like the Jew are equated. Oh, yeah. Um, So that's really interesting to me, that idea of the sort of transient and marginal figure and i mean the constructed yeah yeah i know all of all of them sort of get you know and jews as well so what ian's talking about too um those marginal creatures 
um, the things on the outside. And again, it's, it's that inside and outside, right? That the dog is inside or the dog is part of the home and the wolf is everything that is not part of the home. It is everything alien. It is everything that you want to keep at a distance. So those kinds of characters, those figures, those people you don't know that anything that is other gets lumped in with um, that identity of the wolf too. It's so interesting that the that the negative and the positive parallel uh, in you know because most people would think of the negative connotations from all the fair you know the fairy tales, mm-hmm. but clearly some of those positive connotations, even though they are maybe less acknowledged, have certainly persisted in so many ways. You know, these days the wolves are an emblematic animal for uh, conservation. I think right. uh, so, right. and you know, how did that come to be? And I'm like, well, perhaps some of those unconscious positive wolf values have reemerged in that particular context. And that could very well be. I mean, but also science has caught up too, right? So there's all of that scientific evidence about how important it is to have top predators in the landscape and that Mm -hmm. whole idea of the trophic cascade. I mean, they're influencing everything, right? And they, they improve the health of herds. I mean, all of those things. So you can see why environmentalists are, you know, on the pro side of, of having wolves around. But I mean, the thing that I just finished this piece where I was dealing with this issue, and again, this doesn't really touch on medieval things, and I'm sorry, um, but this idea that people have turned against wolves in part as a way to essentially piss off liberals because environmentalists tend to be liberals. And there's something, there was a bumper sticker that I found that said, kill all the goddamn wolves and the people who put them there. There's this belief that wolves, even in the US, are come from somewhere else, right? They're othered. There's still that medieval idea of them being from somewhere else, outside, external, foreign, alien. All of that is still there. And that has a long, long, long history, which has nothing to do with reality. And as you can see, like the direction my work has taken is that I look at the dog stuff I'm doing now as really my scholarship and the wolf stuff is more advocacy that I, I feel like somebody's got to be advocating on behalf of the wolves. And so that's kind of the direction that my stuff has moved because of that long history, because of how poorly they're treated and, and the weird assumptions about them. And yet I'm thinking back a couple of years, there was this meme. It was like customer review comedy on Amazon about this mm-hmm. t-shirt. Do you remember this? There's yeah. there The t-shirt has like three wolves howling at the moon. And all of these people wrote these reviews that tied this concept of the wolf to manhood, essentially, mm-hmm. to the idea of a kind of macho, free, Western manhood, which is exactly the set of cultural values that are also associated with having a bumper sticker that says smoke a Mm -hmm. pack a day. You know, so it's really, it's really such a tangled mess. If Mm -hmm. you think about the sort of contemporary situation here in the in the West, particularly the American West around the wolf and the sort of attempts to reintroduce the wolf. And, um, you know, these kind of debates, these political, very political debates that really aren't about wolves at all. No, at not at root. all. No, mm-hmm. and they're just the victims. They're just stuck in the middle of all of it. But yeah, it's it's a really disturbing situation with the long history that's led to it. It's not like it came out of nowhere. I mean, it you know, it goes all the way back. And this long, long history, it's really hard to change people's minds, you know? I mean, 
I've got a neighbor who feeds the deer. She's got this huge, huge herd of deer she's feeding in the back. And she said, oh, I love all the animals. And I said, oh, do you want to bring wolves back? And she's like, no, they'll eat our dogs. And I said, they're not. <laughs> they're not going to eat your dogs, okay? That's not what's going to happen. And you could, and she just said, oh, you know, and I, I, I don't like what happened in Yellowstone. And I said, you mean restoring the entire environment by bringing wolves back? Like, you don't like that? And she's like, oh, uh, uh, you know, and she just, it's just this assumption based on all the stories that she's heard that wolves will come and they'll ruin everything. Still there. Still, just, still just, like, just like Jews and the Roma. <laughs> well, yeah. You know? And I mean, this is one of the, one of the things that we've really found in um, doing this podcast and talking to a lot of different people and thinking about a lot of different beasts. And it is called real fantastic beasts because these mm-hmm. are real beasts, right? Like a wolf is a real animal yes. but but a lot of what we're talking about is a fantasy about yep. wolves yeah um and and we found again and again when you say in that um these animals aren't the reason people are writing about them or representing them in art or wearing them on their heraldic crest or however they're engaging with them is less about the sort of observable nature of the mm-hmm. animal even even animals as workaday as rats and mice you know or worms or whatever it's more about a kind of metaphorical or allegorical reading of that animal and how it's useful for thinking about theological concepts or categories of in and out mm-hmm. and i mean at least in the middle ages i think they're pretty honest about this that you know you're trying to read the world as a book, that nature is this kind of coded document that you can unravel, at least in the Christian um, mindset, and also to a certain extent, you know, in like Kabbalah and that kind of thing, that like everything out there in nature is just a code that we that we have to like unpack through a process like exegesis. These days we have this tendency to paper over the fact that that what we think about an animal or what we what we believe about a wolf for example has much less to do with the wolf itself. And that that's why people get into this anti-science stance, right? Like because they're saying, "Oh, well, science is telling me something that isn't that doesn't match up to my metaphorical understanding of this creature, but they don't like, they're not understanding that their understanding is metaphorical. Does that make any sense? It does. You know, like they have a metaphorical understanding of the animal, but they think it's a literal understanding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that clearly my neighbor, it had nothing to do with the way, that the animal actually functions or how they act in reality. It's all based on whatever odd thing she's heard here and there. And she wasn't going to change her mind. Like it was clear to me. I mean, we're standing out there with our dogs and it's very clear to me, this woman is not going to change her mind. Right. She's, we definitely don't want wolves. We don't want wolves. We don't want wolves. And it, and it doesn't make any sense. And they do come through. Right. But I mean, you can also, I mean, I, as I said, I heard, I definitely heard one. Um, and they, they do move through. I mean, there's lots of evidence that they do. And they, the scientists just don't publicize it because they don't want people going out there trying to kill them. You know, they're just yeah. moving from place to place and they can cover huge, huge territories. Um, but I've often thought there's no such thing as a wolf because we've created this weird 
idea. It's a set of ideas rather than an actual animal at this mm. point. You know, and I'm filled with ideas as well about them that come from, you know, both metaphors and science and everything else. And so, you know, I'm 100%, you know, yes, wolves, like, let's bring them back. I want them back. But, you know, and I would like to think I'm more well informed than a lot of other people about them. But at the same time, you know, I know that what I think of with them isn't exactly what they are either, right? They're they're individuals. This is something that we've encountered time and and again, as Alexa mentioned, and it, it's one of the problems of the fantastical animal, which is that there's such a persistent desire to make a metaphor of or to turn into a social construct. And that gives us lots to talk about. And we enjoy talking about it, but it often you know, means that we're not paying enough attention. We don't pay enough attention to the animal itself then mm-hmm. or now. The problem with the wolf really is the problem with all animals, but it's it's maybe more intense with the wolf as it is with some other creatures that are perceived as vermin. I mean, you know, like yeah. that, I, that the idea people get in their heads, like this is a bad animal or I don't like mm-hmm. this animal. It's very hard. You know, science doesn't have an answer to that, right? It doesn't. It doesn't seem to be able to crack people's, uh, you know, clinging to that that particular metaphor. But I do think it's just it's a wider problem in general, and it's a problem for those of us who talk about animals because we're accustomed to talking about metaphor and metonymy and mm-hmm. the so you know we're all about the social construction of fill in the blank, and that doesn't always do animals a service. What you're getting to, I think, is something that I've kind of struggled with, which is that caring about wolves and wanting to improve things for them and draw attention to their positive qualities sort of, and, and all of this made up baggage that they're carrying along with them, all of this metaphorical baggage, in fact, also helps put a target on their back, right? Because the more you kind of bring attention to them, the more you have people who want to try to get rid of them. And so there's this really sort of terrible, to me, kind of terrible question of, is it better or worse to work on them and try to make people see them as positive when it draws attention to them and yourself as a liberal and an environmentalist and gets more people out there wanting to kill them or, you know, have the Utah state legislature ban them. You know, it's, it's now a constitutional amendment to ban wolves in the state of Utah. Like that, that passed in 2021, even though it makes no sense. I mean, how can you ban a species that is native? It it just doesn't make any sense. And it's not coming from a place of rational thought. It's coming from weird, strange ideas and a rejection of science and a rejection of people who are in favor of science and, so yeah, there's a serious kind of conundrum there in terms of how how do you work on something that can actually make it worse for the animal that you care about? You mean when we make animals really into a political, like in other words, you take an animal and you make it the subject, you make it into a political statement, right? Whatever your opinions are, right. cease to become scientific um, or anything other than a political statement. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny to like imagine an alternate universe in which... The animal that's been politicized like this is some kind of little fish, a little gunny fish, 
you know, and then you see how absurd it is, right? Like it sort of exposes the absurdity of it. Although, I mean, you know, I grew up in Washington state and um, pygmy owls became a kind of unlikely villain for the right (laughs) Um, when, when some logging operations were shut down to protect their, this endangered species habitat. And, you know, people had bumper stickers that said, I shoot pygmy owls. And you saw them. Even on the liberal streets of Seattle, you saw people driving around with that on their bumper sticker. And so I think there is a certain inevitability about the ways in which we use, we as human animals use other non-human animals in a kind of political rhetoric. But again, as you point out, Laura, that there are real animals. And and mm-hmm. as Ian and I keep discovering, you know, these sort of fantastical beliefs. And e- even in the case where the animal is real enough to a medieval person, but n- not, you know, scientifically real, even in those instances, real animals, the, real harm is done to real animals. Yeah. often in the name of these fantasies. So that is something always to keep in the frame. Yeah. And it is interesting to me to think about how much the dog has to do with it. You know, that Mm. in this desire to tell the dog from the wolf, there is, you know, and then there are those breeds that look really close. You know, they've been bred to look like wolves, you know, and there's wolf hybrids and there's all of that. But the dog seems to be sort of in some way part of the problem for the wolf and separating the two of them as, as much as possible when there's no real reason to do that um, other than, I don't know, reassurance. I'm not sure why anybody wants to do that. Why in the Middle Ages it's so important to separate the dog from the wolf. I mean, I don't think wolves wanted to hang around. I don't think wolves were like, hey, adopt me. You know, I, I just don't, don't think that was part of, I don't think it was a problem for these people. But there is this really keen desire, it seems urgent in some way, to to separate these two things. One is a friend and one is an enemy, even though the wolf certainly wouldn't construct itself as an enemy. Well, it's been great talking with you, Laura, about wolves. And, um, I'm sorry you know. I wasn't more medieval. I really <laughs> like, have been thinking about contemporary wolves so much. So I'm sorry about that. Well, we can call you back for your expertise on early modern dogs. Um, sure. I just I just heard Laura give a great talk on dogs in portraits, and there's oh, yeah. so much fun. Yeah, uh, um, we talked a little bit about that in our episode on the Mastiff, which is one of um, Ian's uh, specialities. My specialty, yes. <laughs> They're so fantastic. Those Mastiffs yeah. are amazing. They really are. Yeah. Yeah. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes. We would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. 